This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Satan came to Eve in paradise in the form of a serpent to deceive her, Genesis 3.1. But the deceiving serpent has become a powerful dragon that instills fear and dread in his opponents. Notwithstanding, God's people know that Jesus Christ has conquered this dragon even if his force and fury continue to be overpowering. Wherever the dragon goes, he wages war aimed at gaining victory. I stop for just a moment. When the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, when the Soviet Union came to an end in 1991, I was asked the question, what do you think is going to be the next war? because Satan moves around in this world. So what do you see in the future? And my answer was, there will be war in Yugoslavia for quite some time. When that is settled, then you will see war by way of Islam. Have you noticed the influence of Islam throughout the world. I was rather naive by thinking that Islam is only found in the northern part of Africa. And then I found out that Islam is all the way down to the southernmost tip of Africa, Cape Good Hope. Every time you go to a gas station to fill up your tank, you are supporting Islam. And may I also say that Islam rules with the sword. Ever since the 7th century, the beginning of Islam, it has ruled by force. I see dire times coming, especially for the Christian church. The prophet has spoken. <laughs> Continuing. Note that this beast is depicted with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. These numbers are not to be taken literally, but symbolically. The number seven signifies completeness, and the number ten is the number of fullness in the decimal structure. The seven heads and the ten horns refer to completeness in conquering the world, which is evident in the appellation applied to Satan, prince of this world. And the fall into sin, after the fall into sin, Adam no longer ruled in God's creation, but Satan ruled by usurping that power. Luke 4, verse 6. The dragon dominates the world by governing global empires, principal authorities, political movements, and philosophical ideas. An angel interprets for John the significance of the seven heads and the ten horns by saying, the seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings, 17 verse 9 and 10. These heads give leadership in the respective kingdoms. That is, the number seven signifies complete control, as John explains in the next chapter. The expression ten horns appears in Daniel 7, 7 and 7, verse 24, where it portrays a beast that terrifies humanity and personified ten kings. Last. The term seven crowns, also translated diadems, symbolizes his complete control in respect to royal supremacy and majestic sovereignty. 
Satan's crowns, however, represents nothing but pretended royalty. Lenski put it this way. Satan wears symbols of arrogated dominion. The devil exercises fearsome power. Nonetheless, the saints in heaven and on earth know that this power comes to an end at the consummation. They're able to sing joyful praises to Jesus because he rules supreme. Yes, <clears throat> certainly. Daniel 7, where the um, interpretation given to Daniel on the ten horns, the relationship between the, how horns are represented here in Daniel and horns are represented here in Revelation. Okay. The uh, question which is asked is what do you do with <clears throat> the last part of uh, verse 3 where you read about uh, the, uh, the red dragon seven heads and ten horns seven crowns on his head how does that relate to Daniel I would like to say that Daniel speaks about a specific point in history if we say that Daniel lived in the 6th century he's looking into the future and he's talking about kingdoms that are to come, that is the Medo-Persian kingdom, the empire, and then you get the Greek, and then you get the Roman empires. So he is rather specific. You can go to chapter 11 of Daniel and you find it. Daniel is rather specific about what is going to happen before the coming of Christ. John is looking at Satan's dominion worldwide and is especially after Jesus' ascension, when Satan was losing the battle in heaven, was thrown down to the earth, and now, knowing that his time is short, he is present everywhere. It doesn't matter where you go today on the globe, you find the forces of Satan. Think of the area of education in the United States. But go to Europe and you have the same story. Go to Asia, whether you talk about Japan or Korea or China. You have the same story. It seems that Satan has his hands on the empires. Satan has his hands on areas in the world, whether it is education or whether it is <clears throat> politics or whether it is, you can go on and on. That's how I would see it. Thank you. I continue now. Verse 4. Top of page 357. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and he cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. In this sentence, referring to Satan disturbing the starry heavens, oh, pardon me, is this sentence referring to Satan disturbing the starry heavens or causing the fall of a third of the angel world? Many scholars understand these words literally because of 8 verse 12 where the phrase, a third part of the stars was struck, calls for the plain interpretation they also direct attention to Daniel 8, verse 10. The horn threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled upon them. The starry host refers not to an angelic host, but to the godly Jews who obeyed God's law and were slain by the armed forces of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, that is, years 168 to 164 B.C., the uh, Maccabean Wars. Is John in the Apocalypse suggesting a literate interpretation of stars being hurled out of the heavens toward the earth? George Ladd comments, the dragon is such a colossal creature that with one sweep of his tail he can brush a third of the stars out of the natural position. Even though Satan's power is indisputable, 
a literal sense encounters the difficulty explaining how colossal stars can land on the earth. A second view interprets the stars symbolically as angels whom Satan swept along with him into sin. These angels have been consigned to the bottomless pit, which a star, that is an angel, opens as we have it in 9 verses 1 and 2. God prepared this horrible place for the devil and his angels. The number of angels is incalculable, so that the expression a third alludes to a large aggregate of demons that with Satan were cast out of heaven. But also note that a third is the lesser part of the division and that the majority of angels remain faithful to God. We continue. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. The story of Satan seeking to exterminate Eve's godly offspring is repeated all throughout the centuries. Influenced by Satan, Cain killed his brother Abel. Pharaoh drowned the male children of the Hebrews. With murderous intent, King Saul hurled his spear at David. Haman plotted to annihilate the Jewish people living in the provinces of Persia. In New Testament times, Herod the Great slew the baby boys of, two, of up to two years old in Bethlehem. Whenever a new development was about to take place in the history of God's people, in this verse symbolized by the woman, Satan stood ready to thwart God's purposes and tried to eliminate his son. Satan's attacks on the woman continues until Christ returns. In paradise, God put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his offspring and hers. He said that the woman's offspring would crush the serpent's head. This divine prophecy was fulfilled in the birth and life and ascension of Jesus, as the next verse indicates. And so we continue. Verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was about to rule all the nations with an iron rod. And the child was snatched to God and to his throne. Here is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies that predict the coming of Christ, Isaiah 7, 14. The woman representing the church of the Old Testament believers gave birth to her son, the Messiah. John's reading, John's wording seems redundant. A son that is of the male gender. Yes, what else? John... One is enough, please. But John is purposely explicit to highlight the relationship of the woman and the son. Now follow this, will you? We must see the woman as the church that bore the son and in time we see the son redeeming the church which then becomes his bride. See the double picture? There it is. The Son is about to rule all the nations with an iron rod. John often alludes to the Psalter and especially to the Messianic Psalms. Three times in Revelation he quotes words from Psalm 2 verse 9. You will rule them with an iron scepter. 2, 27, 12 verse 5 and 19 verse 15. That is, Jesus rules over unbelievers with an iron rod, which he applies to anyone who rises up against him. He is the shepherd who cares for his sheep and protects them from harm. On the one hand, in Revelation, the words, all the nations can refer to the world that Satan leads astray. An angel announces, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the raging wine of her fornication. 14 verse 8. 
On the other hand, God gathers His own from all the nations so that they come and worship before Him. 15.4 Indeed, Christ rules by establishing His kingdom and applying His rule over all the nations of the world. Matthew 24.14 He rules supreme with justice and love as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the child was snatched to God and His throne. John writes nothing about the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Lord. <clears throat> but why does John omit these redemptive events? He telescopes Jesus' earthly life for several reasons. First, he calls attention to Satan's defeat at the Lord's birth and ascension. Next, he links Jesus' ascension to His rule over the nations. Third, he uses the ascension as a prelude to the next segment, namely warfare in heaven. And last, John mentions two main redemptive facts. He stresses Jesus' birth on earth, that includes His ministry and His ascension into heaven, that includes His majestic rule. God is in control. For at the right moment he intervenes to safeguard his son and causes Satan's strategies to collapse. God is the agent in the passive voice of the phrase, the child was snatched to God. When Jesus took his rightful position on God's throne, Satan and his angels lost their place in heaven. Verse 6. And the woman fled into the desert where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1260 days. Through the Antichrist, Satan directs his wrath primarily against the Christ, whom he seeks to eliminate and whose place he wants to usurp. Before the birth of the Messiah... The devil had tried to destroy the line of believers out of which Jesus would be born, but he failed. Then he attacked Jesus, but realized that his assault also ended in failure. After that, he began to persecute his followers to proclaim, who proclaimed and continued to proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus. All these efforts to result in failure because God protects his people. The woman represents Christ's church on earth whose members flee to a place that God had prepared for them, namely the desert. The image of the desert evokes the account of Israel's 40-year stay in the Sinai Peninsula. Elijah's flight to the same desert. John the Baptist's sojourn in the desert of Judea. Paul also spent time in a desert, the one in Arabia. Three factors <coughs> emerge from spending time in the desert. One, a person is completely dependent on God to provide the material and spiritual necessities of life. Two, the desert is always a temporary place. And three, the desert is a place where God trains His people spiritually and prepares them for service. Thus, the members of the church depend on God to be their provider and protector. They also realize that their stay on earth is but temporary, and they know they are being trained for ex more extensive duties. Just as Israel's time in the desert of Sinai was temporary while Israelites longed for permanence in the promised land, so the church today, waiting on earth, longs to be with Christ forever. God prepares a place of protection and nourishment for the church for 1260 days. Even though her members suffer oppression and persecution, God never allows the annihilation of the church. The number 1260 applies to the two witnesses who receive power to prophesy for that length of time. Thus the reference to the woman in the desert harmonizes with the prophesying of the two witnesses, which means that the witnesses and the woman represent the church. The number 1260 divided by 30 equals 42 months. 
which is the length of time allotted to the Gentiles to trample on the outer court of the temple. The period during which the church is able to witness for the Lord is from the day of Jesus' ascension to the time of His return. The beast of the earth has been given a mouth to blaspheme God's name and to exercise authority for a period of 42 months that equals 1260 days. The devil, therefore, has been given exactly the same length of time the church on earth has received. In short, the meaning of these numbers in chapters 11 and 12 is the same. And now we talk about warfare in heaven. Peter, writing about the ascension of the Lord, says that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. We stop for that in 1 Peter 3.22. Jesus proclaimed victory over the spiritual forces that opposed Him. These forces are Satan and his evil angels. Paul calls these powers the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6.12 Victory came when the archangel Michael and his angelic host conquered these evil forces by casting them out of heaven and hurling them to the earth. Verse 7 and 8 And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back and did not prevail, and a place in heaven was no longer found for them. All through history, until Jesus' ascension, Satan could appear in God's presence, Job 1 verse 6. Satan, whose name means the accuser, could even accuse the high priest Joshua in the presence of God, but the Lord rebuked him, Zechariah 3, verse 1 and 2. Also, Jesus told the 72 disciples who returned from the mission assignment, I saw Satan like falling like lightning from heaven, Luke 10, 18. In other words, Satan had not been yet denied access to God's presence, but could accuse God's people day and night. When Jesus completed His mediatorial work on earth, He ascended to heaven and took His seat at God's right hand. His entry into heaven made it impossible for Satan to come before God to accuse the saints. Jesus assumed the role of the attorney at law, the advocate with the Father, 1 John 2, 1. He paid the price to set his people free, and as a result, Satan has been unable to bring slanderous accusations against God's people. Thus, Satan and his host were denied a place in the presence of the Almighty. We read, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. The name Michael means, who is like God? As one of the archangels, he wages war against the archangel Satan, who wants to be like God. Michael is mentioned in the Old Testament as a prince and protector of God's people in Daniel chapter 10. It is he who with his angels attacked and fought the dragon and his cohorts. The grammatical construction indicates that the dragon is an angel, for he fights at the head of his multitude of angels. Note that not Satan, but Michael is the one who leads the attack. He forces the evil one into battle, which is an indication that he has the upper hand and is sure of the victory. We continue and did not prevail, and a place in heaven was no longer found for them. Satan and his cohorts had to acknowledge Jesus' victory and their defeat when the Lord ascended to the throne. Far from accepting the reality of their overthrow, 
They faced Michael and his formidable host of angels who drove them out of heaven and into a fierce battle. Satan's war with God began when the human race was plunged into sin. <clears throat> when believers in the Old Testament era were taken to heaven, Satan accused them before God of being unworthy sinners. As accuser of the saints, he had free access to God's presence. The devil was not alone in his opposition to the saints entering heaven. He employed fallen angels to work for him. For instance, the Old Testament relates the account of a lying spirit standing before God who gave him permission to put a lie in the mouths of the prophets as they counseled the kings of Judah and Israel. Since Christ's victory over sin and death, these evil spirits can no longer appear before God to accuse the saints. Indeed, not a single accusation can be brought against them for God listens only to their praises, confessions, gratitude, and petitions. <clears throat> Hence, a new era has dawned in which Satan and his angels have lost their place in heaven and are restricted to a place on earth. On that same earth, God gave the woman a place and protected her. Wherever Jesus reigns, wherever the world domination of the Lamb is already established, there the adversary of God has neither place nor rights. Verse 9, And the great dragon was cast down, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. A good teacher repeats the points he wishes to make. So John mentions the downfall of Satan a total of five times in three verses. The great dragon and his followers are cast down to the earth, for heaven is now off limits to them. The series of names, great dragon, ancient serpent, devil, Satan and deceiver, is given for at least three reasons. To identify the one, one whom Christ has conquered. To alert the dwellers on earth of the evils, the devil's grim power. And third, to illustrate this monster's capability to destroy and deceive. The great dragon. Here is a picture of the primeval power of chaos. That is, the dragon is called great because of his enormous power. He gives his power, throne, and authority to the beast that rises up out of the sea. B. That's ancient serpent. The adjective ancient is a reference to Satan who in the form of a serpent deluded Eve in paradise. John uses the term serpent as a synonym for dragon. In fact, it appears five times in Revelation. Paul even warns the church not to listen to the serpent's whispers and so being led astray to depart from Christ. C. The devil. The Greek term diabolos comes from the proposition preposition dia, meaning through, and the verb balain, to throw, and means to throw over or across, to divide, set at variance, accuse, bring charges, slander, inform, reject, misrepresent, deceive. This is an accurate description of the devil's activities. John warns the believers not to yield to his temptations, for then they will be numbered among the children of the devil. And both James and Peter instruct their readers to resist the devil, for he will flee from them. D. Satan. This name is a synonym of the devil, and the terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. The name derives from the Hebrew Hasatan and signifies 
the adversary. Satan is at enmity with God and all those who serve and worship him. He is the accuser and slanderer of God's people. Through him the Antichrist appears as the lawless one whom Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. E. The deceiver. Satan deceives the whole world, which does not mean that the elect are also led astray. He is no longer able to accuse the elect in the presence of God. He is confined to do his evil work on the face of the earth. He seeks to blind the minds of the unbelievers to prevent them from understanding the good news of Jesus Christ. Satan and his evil angels are confined to this earth to carry out the deceptive and destructive work and even here they cannot do whatever they please but can go only as far and do only as much damage as God allows. Satan not only must abide by God's decrees but must also realize that his schemes against God end in failure. Not Satan but God is the ruler of this earth. Move on to verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation, power, and kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ, because the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been cast out. He is the one accusing them before God day and night. John reports what he heard, that he heard a loud voice in heaven, but he fails to identify the speaker or singer, indicating that it is not a matter of importance. Even though angels often sing hymns of praise and use the possessive pronoun our together with the noun brothers and sisters, This rules out the angels. Some exegetes point out, point to Revelation 19.10 and 22.9 where an angel uses the words, your brothers. But these passages do not prove the point that angels call redeemed saints their brothers and sisters. Angels can never regard human beings as brothers and sisters. They differ from the saints in many respects. They lack physical bodies, have not been redeemed, are not heirs of salvation, have not been created in the image of God, and do not have a covenant relationship with God. The voice represents a group of singers, possibly the saints in heaven who sing this song of victory. What does John wish to convey with the time reference now? Revelation stresses not chronological time, which is a fleeting consequence, but the governing principle of time. Hence, the adverb points to the divining line in human history. Christ's death and resurrection, which resulted in his victory over Satan. The word of the song, anticipate the final overthrow of Satan. We continue reading. Now have come the salvation, power, and kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. The words of the song honor God by ascribing to Him the salvation of His people accomplished in Christ, the power Jesus received to overcome Satan, and the kingdom which the Lord handed over to Him. God is supreme in His kingdom. Although Jesus has been given full authority, it is God who rules His kingdom through His Son. Jesus told the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We read, Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been cast out, He is the one accusing them before our God day and night. It is not Michael and his angels who receive praise for the overthrow of Satan, but Christ, who exercises supremacy in his kingdom. When Jesus ascended to the throne, 
with full authority to rule, Satan was cast out of heaven. The phrase, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, characterizes the devil ac devil's activity in the presence of God. This activity has now come to an end because Jesus is the intercessor for the saints and that precludes anyone from bringing a charge against them. What is the significance of the present tense of the participle in the one accusing them? Cast down to the earth, Satan can no longer accuse the believers before God's throne. But he does not accept defeat so as to desist from his evil works. On the contrary, Satan continues his attacks day and night by constantly accusing the followers of Christ and torturing their consciences. He does so by first enticing a person to sin. Next, he, if he is successful, he taunts the sinner with accusations. However, he fails miserably in his endeavors in view of God's forgiving grace through the shed blood of Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9.22 Verse 11 And they have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. And they did not love their lives even in the face of death. John presents a picture that portrays the redeemed people of God, a picture that is not limited by chronological time. He is concerned with the past, but at the same time with the present and the future. So he writes in the past tense as if all God's children have already entered into glory. John writes confidently about the victory of the saints even though the time of Christ's return has not yet come. On the other hand, countless multitudes have already been victorious and are now with the Lord. They claim victory with Christ on the basis of His shed blood that has redeemed them from sin and set them free from Satan's accusations. They are more than conquerors through Him who loved them. For the Lord Jesus Christ gives them the victory. John's perspective is not from earth, still without victory, to heaven, but rather from heaven, triumphant in victory, to earth. Let me read that sentence once more. John's perspective is not from earth, still without victory, to heaven, but rather from heaven, triumphant in victory, to earth. He sees the triumph of Christ with all the heavenly saints who overcame Satan and share in that victory. Whereas, G whereas Satan seeks to accuse the saints on earth day and night, the saints in heaven sing God's praises day and night in thankfulness for their redemption. The phrase, the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, is a repetition of an earlier description of the saints in heaven who have experienced the great tribulation. These are they who have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, the power of Christ's blood has made them victorious. They conquered because they proclaimed and taught the gospel. That is the word of the testimony. They received the gospel and passed it on. So it was their testimony on behalf of Jesus. The blood of Christ is the key to this passage. For the believers redeemed through Christ's sacrifice fearlessly and without any hesitation have been his witnesses. These redeemed believers did not value their lives more than the message of the gospel. They were willing to offer their lives for the sake of Christ. Jesus says to his followers, Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Lord repeatedly teaches the principle of losing one's life for his sake. Paul demonstrates it when he addresses the Ephesian elders by saying, 
However, I consider my life nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, taken from Acts twenty twenty four. Believers express gratitude to Him in their willingness to suffer for Him even to the point of death. The preservation of one's life is a natural proclivity in human beings, but the love for the Lord Jesus overrules it. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and they who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is very angry, because he knows that his time is short. The voice calls the heavens in general and the dwellers in particular to express their joy in the victory Jesus has achieved. The adverb, therefore, links the preceding verses 10 and 11 to the injunction to be glad in the triumph of the Lord, delivered from the accuser's constant intrusion into God's presence, the heavens now rejoice. Numerous times the heavens are exhorted to express their joy. The twenty-four elders, the four living beings, all the angels experienced Satan's intrusions that have now come to an end. Thus neither the heavens nor the saints dwelling there will hear Satan's slanderous accusations any longer. Through Christ's victory, heaven itself has been cleansed. Lament. Here is the dividing line between the triumphant church in heaven and the militant church on earth that resists sin and evil. Now that Satan and his cohorts have been denied entrance into heaven and have been cast down to the earth, the devil is filled with wrath against God's people. He realizes that he has been defeated, that he has been given a limited time here on earth, and that in a short period allotted to him he must unleash his fury. On both land and sea he seeks to deceive and destroy the saints. The woe addressed to the dwellers on earth should not be considered the third woe that is mentioned in 11 verse 14, this woe stands by itself and lacks the differentiation of the definite article. It is used in a general sense, much the same as the double woes uttered by kings, merchants, and seafarers. The heavenly voice warns the earth and the sea that anguish and distress are coming upon them because of the devil's defeat in heaven. Defeated by the victorious Christ, he now vents his rage against the Christians. Satan knows that the opportunity God has given him is of short duration. It is the same as the three and a half years, the 42 months, or the 1260 days mentioned elsewhere. These indications of time are not to be taken literally, but figuratively. The apocalypse features time not in terms of chronology, but as an ideal. This book presents time as an idea in summary form without quantifying it in terms of years or centuries. Not Satan, but God controls time and space. Therefore, the saints on earth know the limitations of the devil as they rely on God's protective care. Now verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast down to the earth, he pursued the woman who gave birth to a male child. This verse is filled with symbolism. The dragon is the symbol of Satan. The woman is the church. The male child is Christ. Unable to attack the exalted Lord in heaven, the devil on earth seeks to destroy the church, the body of Christ. Jesus and his followers are one body, and Saul learned 
As Saul learned when Jesus asked him, Why do you persecute me? Christ is the head and we are his body. If Satan is powerless to assail Jesus, he vents his wrath on his followers. He persecutes Christians, as is evident not only throughout the centuries, but also today. The words cast down or cast out appear here for the fifth time. These words sound a note of victory over Satan's defeat, even though the church on earth must endure his wrath. They refer to the devil's painful fall in his bloodied head that was predicted at the onset of human history, Genesis 3.15. Satan has power on earth and is intent on destroying the church, but he does not seem to realize that because God vigilantly protects his people as the apple of his eye, Satan himself will be defeated in the end. The term male child is preceded by the definite article to indicate the Lord Jesus Christ who ascended to his Father's throne. The same term appearing without the article in verse 5 to designate the newborn male marks the beginning of Jesus' earthly life. Verse 14 And two wings of a great eagle were given, were given to the woman so that she might fly into the desert to her place, where she might be nourished for a time, times and a half time away from the presence of the serpent. John relies on the Old Testament for symbolic pictures. God told the Israelites at Mount Sinai that he had carried them on the wings of an eagle and brought them to himself. Exodus 19 verse 4. The Israelites had just escaped from the clutches of Pharaoh's soldiers and could testify that God had carried them safely across the Red Sea. Other passages speak of the protective wings of the eagle. Indeed, God applies to himself the image of wings that serve as a place of refuge. With the two wings of the great eagle that the woman receives from God, she no longer flees, but literally flies to the place prepared for her in the desert. The church has wings to fly away and es safely escape from the attacks of the devil. It is obvious that with all his resources in the world, Satan is unable to annihilate the church. God has given her a place and lavishly provides her with daily necessities, much the same as he gave the Israelites manna, quail, and water during the wilderness journey. The Israelites were given physical health. Their clothes and their shoes did not wear out. They were shielded from the hot desert sun during the day and were kept warm by the pillar of fire by night. God protected them from the stings and bites of natural enemies, from scorpions and snakes. Hence, God shields the, the church from the attacks of the devil by providing his covenant people with spiritual armor. Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 18. He nourishes and trains them in their spiritual service. John writes that the woman is kept from the presence of the serpent for a specified period, time, times, and half time, which is three and a half years. This reference is taken from Daniel 7.25 and 12.7 and is a time span which equals that of 42 months and 1260 days mentioned by John elsewhere. In the historical setting, there is a literal period of three and a half years during the time of Elijah, who prayed that it might not rain, there was a literal period of three and a half years where the temple was desecrated during the Maccabean War from 167 to 164. The prophecies of Daniel 7.25 and 12.7 refer to it. 
In Revelation, this period refers not literally but symbolically to the interval between Jesus' first and second comings as the interim of the 42 months or the 1260 days. It is a period in which the serpent of deception rules the world. This time definitively definitively comes to an end when God intervenes. Verses 15 and 16. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water like a river after the woman, so that she might be swept away by the river. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon cast out of his mouth. This is now the third time in this chapter that John writes the word serpent. His choice is not merely stylistic. It attests to the craftiness of Satan, who has been losing the battle against God and the church. He is trying once more with trickery to overwhelm the woman and bring her to ruin. He does this by unleashing a stream of water in the desert where God placed her. Note that this water, like a river, comes forth from the mouth of the serpent, which can be interpreted to mean a flood of deceptive words. Already in the earlier part of the Apocalypse, we read that Satan had his own synagogues in the cities of Smyrna and Philadelphia. The leaders of these synagogues subjected the followers of Christ to slander, seduction, and persecution. And voices of deception via the media today engulf the members of the church so that they are in danger of being swept away. But the believers are always aware of Satan's parody that Revelation displays. The river of deception and death is contrasted by the river of water of life flowing from God's throne. God constantly encourages His people not to fear even when the floodwaters threaten to overwhelm them. He comforts them by saying, When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Isaiah 43, 2. The floodwaters of falsehood, malice, crime, and suffering will not be able able to overtake them for God is in charge. His people are not swept away by the torrents swirling around them, but are kept safe. God causes the earth to swallow up the waters that come forth out of the serpent's mouth. His people sang the song of Moses in praise to God. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Exodus 15:12. Even though they may suffer physically in many ways, God protects his own from permanent harm, spiritually, spiritually speaking. Satan loses out once again. At the beginning of this chapter, the dragon stood in front of the woman, ready to devour her child. After he has been hurled to the earth, he pursues the woman who flees, who flies, excuse me, who flies away with the wings of an eagle, and now he stands far away from the woman whom he wants to destroy with the flood. But his efforts end in failure. His own territory, the earth, turns against him when it helps the woman. The deluge wanted to swallow the woman, but instead the earth now swallows the, the deluge. The earth need not the word earth need not be taken literally, as in the case of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who was swallowed by the earth, number sixteen thirty. Symbolically the earth stands for the structure of society that by God's intervening grace reaffirms morality, abolishes evil, and establishes truth. Now we come to the last verse in chapter 12. And the dragon became furious at the woman 
and he went out to fight against the rest of her offspring. Those were keeping, who were keeping the commandments of God and held the testimony of Jesus. Satan, called the dragon, never concedes defeat. Every time he is vanquished, he returns with vengeance and fury. He is unable to reach the victorious Christ and thus he turns his wrath on the church. He is unable to swallow the church as a whole and thus he fights Christians faithful to their Lord. Satan faces a losing battle, which by itself is a source of comfort for those who feel the brunt of his anger in days of persecution and physical abuse. What is the meaning of the phrase he went out to fight against the rest of her offspring. If we take the development of this chapter sequentially, we could infer that Satan has been successful in destroying the church and now wants to conquer the individual believers who form the remnant. The context, however, reveals that Satan has not been able to remove the church because the earth absorbed the flood he sent to swallow her. The rest of her offspring points to the church as a whole, which remains intact until the return of Christ. God will never, no never, leave or forsake her. John has come to the end of the chapter and now summarizes the content of verses 13 through 16. The author steeped in the Old Testament goes back to the beginning of human history where the word serpent and offspring already appear. Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Especially 3. God said to the serpent, All I and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Genesis 3.15 Yet this passage is not the only Old Testament reference John has in mind. If it were so, the italicized words, the rest of her offspring would not be explained. John alludes to the prophecy in Isaiah 66, verse 7 and 8, and then the prophet writes of Zion, quote, Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. End of quote. Two words stand out in this prophecy. Son and children. The virgin birth gave birth to a son, Isaiah 7:14, And Zion brought forth children. The son is the Messiah. The children are his followers. All along, but especially at the end of time, the dragon attacks not the woman, but the rest of her offspring. The equation of singular male with plural children and collective seed, all alluding to the same offspring from Zion, is virtually identical to the phenomenon in Revelation 12. The contrast, therefore, is that of Christ the Son and of all the offspring identified with him. John describes the followers of Christ with the clause, those who were keeping the commandments of God and held to the testimony of Jesus. The characteristics of these people are faithfulness and obedience with respect to God's law and the gospel of the Lord. The law denotes the Old Testament, the gospel, the New Testament. Faithfully and obediently, they continue to keep the teachings of God's Word. As long as they do so, Satan is unable to touch them. These followers advance the cause of Christ's kingdom in this world, wherever they are. Verse 17 reveals that the dragons aim to destroy those who are Christ's followers. At the same time, it forms a bridge to chapter 13 that introduces the dragon giving power to the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. Every time the dragon plots against God and his people, he faces inevitable defeat. This fact indeed 
comforts and assures all believers of their safety and spiritual welfare. That was quite a chapter. <laughs> yes. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.